CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time with the Ben Drosky Show as I speak. It's Friday, January 6, 2023. Of course, it's a podcast. You can be listening anytime. I'm going to tell you, just in case you are listening anytime, what's uh, the headline of today's newspaper, just so you have a sense of what's going on in the world. Let's begin this conversation with my distinguished guest who's patiently waiting. Here's a headline from today's New York Times. Freshly home delivered. That's the sound of the paper being delivered. Uh, no deal on day three, even as McCarthy tries concessions. Yes, yes, yes. We're political talk show. We've been talking about this all week long. Kevin McCarthy, the uh, California Republican from a district uh, in uh, Southern California. I always forget that he's from Southern California which is kind of freaky because everybody, this is so weird, a twisted little way in its own because California has evolved politically to the point where I think the state is roughly, don't quote me on this, 70 to 75% Democrat. So the, the leading player in this bizarre, twisted, whacked out drama in which we're watching MAGA completely unfold and lose its shit, uh, just... <coughs> Watching it in prime time, in vote after vote, where the Republicans are hapless and helpless and incapable of mustering the 218 votes they need to elect their own guy as their speaker. Uh, the the leader of that, uh, the leading player in that drama, that melodrama, whatever it is, I won't call it a tragedy. Uh, I guess it's a tragedy for the rest of us. Uh, but the leading player in that is from one of the most democratic states in the country. It's kind of a weird twist. If you've ever been to Cali, you know that it's like liberals, lefties, uh, sort of middle-of-the-road types, and then hardcore MAGA. And so he represents the hardcore MAGA portion of the state of Connecticut. This is a little twisted thing I just thought about. Uh, he can't get it the, the votes he needs. No deal on day three, even as McCarthy uh, tries concessions. Uh, there's 20 or 19 to 20 it varies the number from time to time. Uh, hardcore Trumpers who just despise him up and down and just, they're not going to budge. 
and so uh, there's no principle in this, ladies and gentlemen, as I pointed out. There's no difference between any of these people in terms of how they view the world or the legislation they would enact if they had any power. This is just a power struggle for the sake of a power struggle. They don't like them, and they want to flex their muscles and show the world that they have the ability to keep him from being speaker, and so they're going to do that. He wants to be speaker. This is his lifelong dream, and so he is going to keep endlessly having this vote. Until, I don't know what they they could just literally drag the dude off the stage. Uh, anyway, so I was thinking about what sums up this madness in Washington. Uh, and then uh, it came to me, it's like this. Uh, here, I will now read a quote. Idiot win, blowing every time you move your mouth, blowing down the back roads heading south. Idiot win, blowing every time you move your teeth. You're an, <laughs> I love this last part. You're an idiot, babe. It's a wonder that you still know how to breathe. Yes, indeed. That's Bobby D. Bob Dylan. I was thinking of idiot win when I see politicians doing really stupid things, and we've been watching it all week. Without further ado, that's a perfect segue. I'm going to ask my guest to introduce himself, and away we'll go with this conversation. So, guest, introduce yourself. All right. How you doing? I'm Jamie Daniels. Uh, I'm an actor and musician living out in the... Uh, in Wackadoo, California, as we've discussed. Um, and uh, I'm also the founder and leader of uh, the tribute band, the Jack of Hearts Band. Uh, we do tribute of, uh, to Bob Dylan and the band. So that was uh, apropos, that quote there. And man, yeah, Idiot Wind, man, you can use that for so many things, but especially right now, what's going on with the GOP, I would say that's a perfect, <laughs> perfect example. Well, I... Uh... Uh, I'm going to get get your thoughts about Idiot Win, what's going on in Idiot Win. All right, so everybody who's listening to this show, we know we're a political talk show. Um, but from time to time, I, I just deviate a little bit from politics to talk about things that I uh, really enjoy and love and are obsessed with uh, in my quote-unquote real life outside of politics, my obsessive following of politics. And one thing, obviously, I've had many, several shows on Bob Dylan. I urge everybody to check out the uh, one-hour extravagance I did with my old pal McDumkey on Murder So Fall. We spent an hour talking about one song. Oh, yeah. uh, That's just about the length so, of the song, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, think, I, think, I actually think we spent more time talking about the song. The song is very long. Uh, it's it's it, a good one, though. It is a good one. It is. Uh, but anyway, uh, so when I was in Cali, uh, I bumped into uh, to Jamie. He was wearing a, a mask. Um it was uh, to prevent COVID spreading, uh, and it was guitars. I go, oh man, you like you're in the guitars. Who's your favorite guitars? One thing led to another, and that's when he revealed to me uh, that he is the leader of this Bob Dylan tribute band. And I was like, oh my god, you got to come on my show. We got to talk Dylan. Yeah, we hit it uh, Yeah, and it was about a week ago, and man, we cut that deal real fast. Yeah. Uh, and so he's uh, also said he's going to sing a, a, a couple songs, Dylan songs for us uh, today. I appreciate that. Uh, and uh, so let's just start at the obvious. Why? What got you to the point? You could have done uh, any uh, musician in the world. You could have done original music, et cetera, and so forth. You, uh, but why Bob Dylan? Well, uh, well, you know, the funny thing is when I... I moved out here about 15 years ago, and I mean, I've been an actor my whole life. That was my goal, and I uh, never, never planned to do uh, music professionally. But uh, in college, I picked up a guitar finally and decided to uh, teach myself. And at that same time, I had just um, basically gotten really heavy into Dylan's music. 
And um, turns out that, you know, using a lot of his older tunes as like a template to kind of learn how to play kind of helps. So I actually learned my very first song was Desolation Row uh, because I mean, it's three chords for what, 10 minutes. So it's easy to easy to uh, learn some repetition on the guitar, get some uh, vocals in. And, um, you know, I, I played his music a lot through that time and I would sing along with it. Just kind of noticed that I could imitate him pretty well in a way that wasn't uh, super goofy and still never thought of doing it as a as an actual gig. Um, but when I moved out here to Los Angeles, there was a Beatles tribute that played every night at this uh, British pub in Santa Monica. And we went to go see these guys. They were fantastic. Sounded pitch perfect. And after kind of becoming friends with them for about a year, a year and a half, uh, the idea sort of came upon me to maybe try my hand at this. Uh, sort of tribute thing, more as a side project, just kind of for fun and uh, to kind of accompany the acting stuff I was doing. And uh, they were nice enough to let me come up during the show and, and they give it a shot one time. And after I sat down and uh, after doing the show, the guy comes up to me from the Beatles group and says, you know, I didn't get to see Dylan in the 60s when I wanted to, but I feel like I have now, so you can come play with us anytime. So I, I realized at that point that I had something um, with this and just decided to kind of Put, put together a band a little while later, and uh, lo and behold, here we are. Well, that's funny. The Beatles tribute guy uh, really propelled you in this motion. And uh, here's a little trivia, folks. Uh, as I as I recall, and I just correct me if I'm wrong on this one, it was Bobby D who introduced the Beatles to Reefer. I believe that's true. That's that's the story. That's and, the story. Uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. They, uh, they're blaming uh, Bob Dylan for that. That's fine. Um, I think that's acceptable. <laughs> so, uh, when you encounter a Bob Dylan song, so you're, uh, you, I know you told me your specialty is Bob Dylan from like the sixties, uh, through the seventies. Yeah, generally. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. You don't, uh, I mean, you know, his music after the, uh, eighties. Certainly. Absolutely. I just think, you know, for, for vocal reasons and just obviously visually too, cause you know, for a long time, um, I was, you know, doing my hair up in a big old fro. Um, after a while I got tired of keeping my hair at a certain length. So I would use a wig for a while. And at the, at the, right now I don't really do a wig anymore. I kind of try to do a little more like myself. Usually in our shows, I, I perform sort of as Dylan during the songs. And then in between, I'm kind of just a little bit more myself. It's not necessarily like a straight impersonator act. Um, and, uh, uh, so yeah it's just but i love just getting into his energy and i think uh it's really easy to just drop into that during songs you know by the way have you ever heard from dylan the whole time you're doing yeah, it not, not, not personally no no i've many many friends and colleagues around town that have either known him played with him have met him uh not quite yet i mean he does live in the area i suppose if i took a walk somewhere around his house i could probably uh, see him walking down the street maybe if he if he ever gets out of, out of his house but uh no i mean other than that no not really uh, that would be great. I don't really know what he would think of this. My initial inclination is that he would not be super cool with this. Maybe he would. I don't know. Well, you, I could see you having that uh, view because uh, he has, Bob Dylan uh, is not afraid to show his utter contempt for people. Certainly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've seen it many times in concert. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's real. Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, I feel like, you know, because I do have some original music as well, and I, I do work a little bit on both. But, um, you know, this is something that is fun to do. A lot of people love the music. Um, my bandmates are big fans of Dylan and the band as well. And we just we just have so much fun performing. Um, and uh, and we can make some decent money from time to time doing it, so it's cool. Uh, in L.A., it's a little tougher to do, like, a tribute act. But 
out, outside of LA, you know, all over the country, there's just a lot of great places to go and people really appreciate it out there. So, um, you know, we just kind of do it more for the love of the music than anything. Now, uh, one of the things, uh, I know about myself and Dylan is sometimes I, uh, really go down like the rabbit hole, what he's trying to get at. Uh, and I've talked about this and written about this, made fun of myself for this and I made fun of Dylan for this. Uh, and, uh, I know that John Lennon, he, this is on my mind right now. Uh, follow me on Jamie on this one. He, he wrote, uh, there's the most popular movie in America is called glass onion. Uh, they got that title from a Beatles song, which, uh, is a parody. John Lennon wrote this song. It's a parody of people looking for hidden meetings in Beatles songs. Okay. And John Lennon loved making fun of, there's no meeting. I just wrote the thing, you know, or, you know, he always said like he and Paul wanted to get, get another a swimming pool. So they wrote a hit. That's the only reason. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. yeah there's a bit, very, so many nonsense songs that John wrote. Yeah. Yeah. So is, do you ever find yourself, uh, like really struggling to figure out what the hell Bob Dylan's like desolation row that, Man, folks, if you ever listen, just take a look at the lyrics of Desolation Row. Certainly. Oh, uh, man. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, yeah. No, I was going to say there's a, no, there's certain songs. Okay. So, like, Gates of Eden is like a perfect one. Like, what, one of the reasons that I got into Dylan, well, okay, I was already into Dylan pretty, pretty hardcore. But when I was studying abroad in England uh, back in 2005, I uh, met up with an old family friend uh, who uh, they live in England and, and they, they sat me down after dinner and we, in his, very English study. And I never heard this album until this point, but he put on the bootleg series six was the 1964 Halloween concert, which is still probably one of my favorite performances of his. And it was the first time that I'd ever heard some of the stuff from bring it all back home, including, um, Gates of Eden. And this version of Gates of Eden that's on that live show is, is incredibly haunting and just interesting. Sorry if you're hearing some uh, <laughs> traffic outside here. Um, it's just, it's, it's wonderful. It's beautiful. I don't understand a lick of it. I don't think I still understand what the hell it's about. Um, it's just these crazy psychedelic images. And I know there's got to be meaning somewhere, or at least I think so, but I've never been able to pinpoint what it is. And um, to connect to that, actually, when, when it comes to memorizing Dylan stuff, I'm actually pretty good about that. I think maybe it's from years of, of memorizing scripts, but I'm pretty good about memorizing his lyrics from when I perform. However, there are certain songs, especially uh, My Back Pages, which is just like the imagery is just so all over the place that it's like impossible for my brain to connect one thought with the other. So it's it's oh, it's it's so hard to memorize that without having like something in front of me. Um, and I just feel like with some of those songs in the mid sixties, like he, man, he was on some drugs for sure. And I'm sure he had some ideas that made sense, but I'm not sure if they translated real well. So I don't know. I, I'm the same as you. I like, there's things I really get, or at least I think I get. And then there's other stuff that I just, I've kind of stopped even trying to get. Well, that's, even... yeah, that's the point. Uh, I suppose is that you shouldn't really care. Uh, or you should enjoy, enjoy a line for the sake of the line itself. Not Certainly. And I do appreciate that, you know, just the language itself. And I think, you know, he is a master of language. And I just think that that's one of the, that's his big charm, I think, because obviously his music is great. But, you know, I guess most people aren't really listening for the music as much as his, his words, his lyrics, like, you know, what he's what he's saying or what he wants to tell you, you know. All right. So um, why don't, you said you were, were going to sing. Uh, what did, which song did you tell me you were going to sing? Well, one of the ones I love doing almost all the time like in my shows is uh, It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. I love that tune. It's always been one of my favorites. So, yeah, if you, I'll, I'll pull this up here. Uh, Get my lyrics out. All right. As you can this see, is, I have the Bob Dylan lyrics book. I'm telling oh, you, yeah. we're talking to him pretty much. I got, I got one of those at least. I don't, hang on a second. Let me put this, take this off. 
Oh, all right. This is the uh, guitar I had mentioned to you when I saw you uh, last week. This is the, the one from uh, Gibson. I was, um, this is, we had this made last year. This is the one that Dylan played. Uh, you can see it all over uh, Don't Look Back. And uh, he played it for like 64, 65. I think, he, I think it was lost or stolen in, in uh, Australia during the 66 tour is what I've read. But um, Gibson made this really kick-ass guitar for me uh, because I have a buddy over there. And man, this thing is just fantastic. And it helps. It gives a little authenticity to the show, which I think is cool. So there we go. Let's see. All right, ready for this? Let's do it. Thank you. 
Dylan fashion, I you know mixed up some lyrics. You did, the cool man. Thing about doing, <laughs> the cool thing about doing Dylan is that he does it all the time in, in concert. Him and the band both do that, so there are many times in our actual shows where we kind of might mess up something like that, and it makes it maybe more authentic. So I'm okay with that. All right, <laughs> take some of the pressure. I'm going to take go one step further, and uh, I've been to several Bob Dylan concerts in my life, and I, I the, right now he's pretty much down to bleats. In terms of, it's like, because he likes to vary uh, the, the the melody of the song. So you can, it's not like one of those things where you know an artist inside out, like people who go to a Bob Dylan concert know Bob Dylan inside out. So they instantly know what song he he's playing when he just starts in on it. Because he'll vary it. So you go, what the hell song is this? And then you're... You're looking for some clue from the lyrics, and all you hear are bleeding. And I'm like, oh, man, Dylan, man. I don't even know why I showed up. I guess I'm just going to stare at you uh, for two hours and just say, I was in the same room as Bob you know, it's, so, it's funny you say that's literally exactly why I go these days. Although, you know, I, for many years, because like, the first time I saw him, I mean, uh, unfortunately for me, I saw him pretty late. The first time I saw him was like 2002 or three, I think. So, you know, I, I didn't get to see him, obviously, before his voice was what it is now. Um, but the first, like, 10, 12 years of concerts that I saw uh, from then on, was just like that. It's like couldn't hear a word. I I, I heard like I figured out what a song was about halfway through it. It'd be a song I know very well, but as you said, you hear like one word in the middle of the song. I like, oh, that's what the song. Is. <laughs> and um, and yeah, it is. He's you know, in my opinion, he is our our sort of living Shakespeare in a way. And uh, you know, you just kind of go there to, to be in his presence, really. And even if you you know you can't understand what the hell he's saying. What I will say though is, um, ever since he did the um, Sinatra albums. I really felt like his band uh, has really toned down the, their volume, just their, their, the tonality of it, the way they're playing now. It's way more focused on being able to hear Dylan now, I think. Uh, before, I, I, when I, you know, I, I saw him once at the Palladium here in L.A., and um, they were playing so, so damn loud that I actually got some permanent hearing damage. I, my ear was ringing for like a week afterward, and I could feel it because they were just playing so loud, so raucous, and you, the mix was shitty. And I kind of, for a while, when I was seeing him, I like I, I kind of just got tired of it. There was one show I went to where Mark Knopfler opened for him, 
And man, he blew it out of the water. He was fantastic. And then Dylan came on and then I was like, mm, I think <laughs> yeah. I've seen my fill. Yeah. I think I'm done. Uh, at least for live shows, you know, I wasn't done with Dylan, but just with that stuff. And then, you know, a couple years later, I go back to another show and man, he was fantastic. And, uh, you know, I think it's been improving since then, but it, it's certainly tough when you go to a show because it's hard to, it's hard to appreciate some of the older songs, but, you know, for his, you know, the most recent tour, I saw him last past March in Phoenix and, uh, you know, he did most everything from uh, rough and rowdy ways. And I think when he sticks to this, the newer stuff, I think it works really well in concert. It's just, it's just tough to hear the older stuff. Yeah, you know? that's where he's at right now. Uh, so it's all over now, Baby Blue, is what I could call a classic uh, self-pity Bob Dylan song. And uh, I'm going to share you my theory with this, Jamie, get your thoughts. So uh, Bob Dylan, uh, I think part of the reason uh, he is so successful, what propelled him through life, is he has a huge chip on his shoulder. There's no doubt in my mind. This man, it's like... Uh, uh, it kind of reminds me, the, the closest thing is in the world of sports, Michael Jordan from the Chicago Bulls. Uh, every insult, every slight, uh, he recalls and it propels him to greatness on the court. And Dylan is the same way. I think like in those early days, uh, like he was, uh, it was easy to underestimate him. It was easy to blend him in with all the other folk singers coming up uh, from all over the country to, to Greenwich Village. So he was going to prove that he was better than anybody else. And then uh, he was going through uh, one relationship after another, uh, it seems like, breaking up. Probably uh, there's two sides to every story, but we only heard Don Dillon's side. So it's all over now, Baby Blue, is, is where he sets a Baby Blue, whoever Baby Blue up, uh, for a big fall. It's kind of like... Um, uh, like a Rolling Stone. He sets up the woman in like a Rolling Stone for a big fall. Oh, you're so high and mighty then. Look at you now. You know, the vagabond who's revving at your door. I mean, everybody's like, they're taking your clothes. They're taking your furniture. You're poor. You got no money. Look at you now. Uh, and I always wondered, like, I would love to hear the other person's side of the story. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I've heard, I mean, I've read at least that I think, I don't know if this is the right name. I think it was maybe Victor Manions, I think it was his name. It was, he was like a buddy of Dylan's. I, I think the song is possibly about this buddy of his that, you know, they, they traveled around together and, you know, and then at a certain time, like, I don't know, they had fallen out. Maybe it wasn't cool. I don't know. Maybe backstab and I don't know, but either way, Dylan had, was kind of through with this guy. And I think from what I read, that's what the song was about. I mean, it might be about a, a woman as well, but I do think, I think it was just about this guy who like used to kind of travel with him and now he's. He's kind of cutting him loose, and um, yeah, it's pretty bitter. There's no, there's no, um, there's no real love lost for this guy. It seems like or girl, whoever this is, you know. It's just, it's like you had your time and you cut loose. So here we go. Uh, here's a phrase. Uh, here's a line. Yonder stands your orphan with his gun, crying like a fire in the sun. Look out, the saints are coming through, and it's all over now, baby blue. Orphan with his gun. So yeah. help me out, Bob yeah. Dylan guy. What's that oh, all well, about? I mean, he understands the orphan with his gun. Uh, shoot, I mean, this orphan, uh, he sounds he sounds pissed, and rightfully so. He has no parents who, who took care of this guy. I don't know. He seems like he's on his own. That's what I'm, I'm assuming. I mean, this guy, the, the orphan is almost like Dylan. He's got the chip on his shoulder, you know? I mean, he was, you know, started out a rough life. So maybe uh, that's why the, where the gun comes into play. Uh, crying like a fire in the sun. Uh, I mean, that one... That one eludes me. I haven't seen many fires cry, but uh, you know, yeah, I, I know. <laughs> yeah, you can't trip too much on uh, on the song, which uh, leads me to "Idiot Win." 
So Idiot Win is a song I quote all the time uh, whenever I'm confronted in politics by just too much idiocy to believe. Uh, and um, uh, Idiot Wind uh, is just such a great phrase. Absolutely. Uh, well, we see this on a daily basis, obviously, in politics, but in so many areas of the world and life in general. Just, just how many idiots are in charge of everything? Like, just, there's just... I mean, because uh, I mean, I think part of why I connect with Dylan is we do have I mean, that chip on our shoulder, that that sort of contempt for uh, the authorities and what, and just the way the way of the world. I mean, I completely under, understand and agree with that. And uh, man, it's just it's maddening. It drives you completely insane to uh, just to, to try and understand how all these people are in charge. How did these people get here? Like we've had civilization going forever, and this is you know we couldn't get better than this. And it's, you know, things are better than they used to be in some ways, but man, it's just like, there's always these just idiot assholes in charge of everything. And, um, man, I know, and this, you know, that song has actually always been my favorite off of, uh, Blood on the Tracks, which is my favorite album too. And that, the energy of that song, the anger, I think that's what I connect to, I think more than anything. I have, you know, this sort of deep seated anger about just the, because of this, the world not being this utopia that we think it could easily be. Right. And, and um, although I know that Idiot Wind, you know, is a lot about his divorce as well. I mean, clearly, clearly the one that's on the album uh, is um, is kind of aimed outward at a lot of different people. And I feel like it's maybe his angriest song. I mean, it's, it seems to be more angry than even Rolling Stone. And um, yeah, he's just he's just had it. Um, and there's something about the the album version that's different than the early versions he did in New York that are just him on guitar, which that, that, that version is very, very sad in my opinion. That was like a very, uh, you know, sad kind of breakup song. Whereas the more rock and roll version that's on the, the, the main album is, um, is just like a fuck you to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Including his wife, I guess. Well, it, it, and the thing, uh, that I, again, I'm, I'm too literal minded for Bob Dylan. And I admit this, I'm a very literal minded human being. Uh, and so, for instance, orphan with this gun, you just kind of view that as a metaphor. You know what I mean? Like, it's just think of an orphan. Uh, it's just completely down and out and left behind and all alone. But he's got a gun. And all of a sudden, the, the, the relationship has changed. OK, so you got to. Uh oh, the, he, the guy that's down is now up. A favorite Dylan thing, you know, uh, where the person who was down is now up. Uh, and uh, so you, you just have to think of it as a metaphor, nothing any literal uh, meaning. But Idiot Win, it's, it tells a story. There's a story being told in Idiot Win. And it's like Dylan shifts the narrative from time to time in the middle and the songs telling. And I'm like, all right, who's what's going on here? I, <laughs> I, I thought this was a narrative, you know, like I thought you were literally telling a story about a character who, uh, uh, you know, shot a man named Gray and, you know, and then took his wife to Italy. I thought this was a story about Gray, but now it seems to be shifting. You're messing with me, Bobby D. All right. You're just playing with me. Uh, uh, so is there a story? In, uh, does you see it in Idiot Wind? Do you think it follows? I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I just knowing what I know about like his breakup, I, I feel that there's that personal side of the story that, yeah, I think there's some of that. Um, I don't know that there's like a, a, a a true linear narrative to that to that song, but it, it kind of feels like it um, as it goes through. But it just there's so much. Oh man, there's just so much anger at like just the stupidity. I mean, the, the priests were black on the seventh day and waltzed around while the building burned, and all these like things where these just people who are supposed to be holding the gates are just man, they're just tearing it down. It's just it's just, it just uh, I, I don't know. There's just so much that it just sounds like he's just ready to burn it down. That kind of what it what it, I think I take from that song more than anything, but. 
um, is just he's just fed up with all the bullshit that we put ourselves through as people, as you know, in relationships and, and all types of relationships, whether they're business or personal and stuff. And I think um, he's just man, he's just tired of all that shit. I think I'm sure he was tired of all the people coming after him and wanting him to be like his old self. And, you know, he, I remember him saying a lot that he was like one of the only musical artists at the time that was ever compared to himself. Everyone else was compared to other artists. He was only ever compared to himself. And like, he was tired of that. And, uh, you know, I just think he's just really striking out at all that stuff. Again, the self pity. Hey, Bobby D nobody asked you to be a rock star. <laughs> I mean, nobody said you got to leave Hibbing, Minnesota, come to New York, turn yourself into a rock star, go around the country playing endlessly in front of people. Okay. Wearing different costumes, being all mystic and stuff, and then complain about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because, you know, I can't imagine that he, you know, he had any idea how big he would be. I mean, I know that, of course, I'm sure like as anybody, if his, type i'm sure he was looking forward to being like you know a celebrity or at least a star you know if he made it but i just don't think you know he had any idea how people would react in, in, in a way that was almost like the beatles in a sense no, obviously not quite there but but i mean it was like on a level that he was like wait i'm just a musician man i just want to play some music and now you're turning me into the spokesman of a generation and and you know ascribing even more meaning to stuff that even maybe i meant in some of my songs and i just think man that gets uh it gets tiring and now all of a sudden you have to live up to your own your own shadow and that's it's crazy i can't imagine having to live with that i mean the fact i mean the fact that he's like still around and and is still pretty coherent is amazing to me because i would have lost my mind after you know dealing with that for years you know no he um yeah i agree with you and i i, I tease bob dylan from afar uh, but oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, pretty no, no, no. I mean, he's, you know, he's not without his, uh, bizarre, bizarre, you know, idiosyncrasies his and, quirk. and, uh, yeah, he's, he's a weirdo. Uh, but, uh, yeah. So how about, uh, one more song? Uh, let's do something from blood on the tracks. I was thinking, I mean, I'll let you pick it. Uh, although yeah, well, well, if you wanted to hear something specific, I mean, I don't care. It's, I'll, I'll play whatever you want. Um, well, you know, the poppiest song on that album uh, I like. It's called, uh, and I think it's pop. It's got a poppy melody, as in pop music melody. Uh, you're gonna make me lonesome when you go. I always thought that oh, was. Yeah, gonna, you know, uh, I had to. That one, I actually, you know, let's do it. Let's do it different because I had to had to have that tune in a whole different. Oh, okay. Well, tune down. That's okay. Uh, let's see. But you said maybe you said like Silver Shelter from the Storm. Yeah, Shelter from the like, Storm. Uh, Love Shelter. Yeah, this is a great song. You know, it's funny that the the sister song to this one I call the sister song because it's basically the same tune. Um, song up to me that he never he never put it on blood on the tracks but i think it's on biograph um or either that or it's on the first bootleg series but it uh um man it's that's one of, that actually probably is my number one favorite dylan song of all time I, I don't really know why exactly but i just love the lyrics in it and uh it's it's very similar to shelter from the storm and, um maybe i'm just a hipster and like i wanted to like the you know the unreleased cool song that nobody else knows i don't know but um so this one is i love playing this one too it's very similar Give you 
was really well done. That was really well done. Uh, and that's uh, very similar uh, to Idiot Win, uh, where he goes from the personal to the metaphorical. Uh, and if you get too literal-minded, as I tend to get, uh, you'll start tripping over like, wait a minute, where is he in the narrative of his life with this woman? What's he doing up in this foreign country? I don't get it, man. <laughs> and, and it, Absolutely. I'll be like, and ladies and gentlemen, if you go uh, to uh, if you go to Jamie's website uh, and see uh, you know the promotions of the ba- of his of his band, you can hear some of his music. But you could also hear this riff he does imitating Dylan himself. Uh, for all Dylan fans, know what I'm about to allude to. It's a a scene from a documentary where Dylan starts haranguing a reporter from Time Magazine. Dylan loved to give reporters. Uh, a hard time because reporters, I am a lifelong reporter. So we're so literal minded. We're literally, that's what we do. We collect little factoids and, and Bob Dylan's attitude. What does it matter, man? What does it mean? What are you doing? Where's that question coming from? You got to think about the premise behind it. He's just messing with this reporter. Oh, absolutely. It's one of my favorite things to watch. All the videos in the mid sixties, especially. I mean, he, he did it through his whole career, but that uh, famous 65, uh, uh, San Francisco press conference is hilarious. So they ask him all these ridiculous questions about like how many, he was like, how many, uh, you know, musicians or folk artists, you know, like you are there out there. And he's like, I don't know, uh, 132 or maybe 147. I mean, he's just coming up some random numbers. I mean, they just, they ask him such asinine questions. And I guess for someone who is creating, you know, music that is very abstract and, and doesn't necessarily have a literal meaning, you know, trying to answer these questions with a straight face would be tough. And I just think that he just had the right idea to just be like, throw, you know, throw it right back at him. And maybe, you know, Maybe he took a little bit from John Lennon too, and maybe they took a little bit from each other because they both, you know, they all, they all kind of made fun of that stuff to the press. Um, but man, that's one of my favorite things, just to see him just taking down all of those guys. Yeah, squares, man. Uh, and, yeah. Yeah, no, John Lennon, uh, he could be pretty cheeky too. But John Lennon, it always seemed like John Lennon. Uh, it just always seemed like I've watched a lot of John Lennon clips too, and he was he was more good natured in a weird way. I mean, he could be dark. Uh, and uh, sarcastic, but he always did it with like a smile on his face. Uh, I think that was the interview, the one where he goes, where they go, he goes, uh, they go, like, are you a poet? He goes, I'm just a song and a dance, man. Uh, yeah, that's, that's one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah. It's fantastic, man. Yeah, it's like, what are you going to say? Dancing. Uh, anyway, uh, great stuff, and thank you very much uh, for uh, coming on the show, and I just want to show you this. I'm the real deal. Uh, right here, is I can't know if you can see it. It's Bob Dylan's latest book, The Philosophy of Modern Song. Uh, and this is this is Bob Dylan just riffing. He takes a, a popular song, and some of these songs you won't know, ladies and gentlemen, from the 40s or the 50s. Uh, or maybe you are in the 40s or 50s, you know them, and you won't know the poppy songs from the 70s. Uh, and he does these riffs, and like it's it's almost like um, a poem's uh, prose, uh, Jamie. But here's one line I just wanted to share with you from his reflections on the song by The Who, uh, My Generation, which is a song from the 60s. Uh, Bob Dylan writing this. Every generation gets to pick and choose what they want from the generations that came before with the same arrogance and ego-driven self-importance that the previous generation had when they picked 
the bones of the ones before them. That one little line really jumped out at me because I think he was talking about himself picking the bones of all the artists that came before him and assembling them uh, into the songs uh, that he spent his lifetime singing. Certainly, yeah. I mean, I think that you know he's been uh, you know he's been accused of plagiarism many times over his career, even even recently. And you know, and he's always been known as every artist is to to take you know um, inspiration. And you know, even if he lifts lines or other things from songs that are either traditionals or folk songs or um, you know anybody's original song, it's just like that's what that's what society is based on. That's what most art is based on. I mean, there's almost nothing that's you know original now, and so. I think it's true about everybody and especially him. And I don't think you could have the depth of his music if he didn't, you know, if he didn't take from this wonderful, you know, you know, treasure trove of material that came before it. And I think that's something that, that should be, you know, celebrated rather than like put down. A lot of people are, you know, trying to put that down. Oh, you're not original. I'm like, no, you know, you're taking something and you're making something new with it. I think I, I would argue that he was very original with how he took the material and took, you know, flipped it on its head really, you know? And, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, a defense of Bob Dylan from a guy who's in a Bob Dylan cover band. I can't, <laughs> who would have saw that coming? Uh, but I'm with you on that one. Yeah. He's like a magpie. That's the line I've always heard about. Him. He just a magpie builds a nest with bits and pieces of things uh, that it finds in the backyard. Uh, all right, Jimmy, before I let you go, tell folks the name of your band, uh, the website where they can find you. And uh, are you coming to Chicago anytime soon? Or most I would love to. We don't, we don't have anything uh, lined up for Chicago, but hopefully soon. Uh, my band is called the Jack of Hearts Band. You can find us at Jack of Hearts band.com and again we are a tribute to dylan and the band as well we love doing the band so we have a little bit of that going on um i would you know what i would really like to do is um this past year a few months ago actually we finally did a really great show that i've been wanting to do for ages which was a tribute to the rolling thunder review um i mentioned this to you earlier that we got scarlet rivera um to play with us and man but that was like absolute blast scarlet is fantastic um, we had a lot of fun with her, uh, and she uh, would love to hopefully jam with us again sometime. So my goal is to kind of put together another, a sort of Rolling Thunder show, and hopefully see if we can sell it and move it around uh, to some theaters. So I would love to bring that particular show to Chicago. Uh, but even if it's just a standard Jack of Hearts show, I would love to get out there and, and play, because I'm sure that we'd have a lot of fun, and uh, there's got to be it. I'm sure a massive amount of Dylan fans out there. Uh, there are, yes, there are, and uh, would love to see that the Rolling Thunder uh, show. Indeed. Oh man, what a, that, was, that was a blast! So much fun. Uh, and you're all in the. So if you guys know that uh, the, the Rolling Thunder, uh, there's the the movie. Uh, was this Scorsese director, right? I want to say, did, yeah. yeah. And uh, Dylan's wearing white. Uh, got white this white makeup on, uh, uh, and uh, Jamie goes all out he's just they, you know, I got the hat yeah it's the hat I saw the hat <laughs> it's hanging there over yeah uh, yeah no we try to do it as you know sort of authentically as possible we don't want to make it like a carbon copy but but it's the energy's there it, you know, I want it I want it to feel like for the audience that they're watching the real Rolling Thunder review like if you know since most people probably couldn't have actually seen the real one so it would have been great to, you know that's what we're trying to do is kind of just recreate that experience without it being just just a carbon copy you know all right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, you're sec you're the second person I just literally bumped into in LA that ended up coming to my show, uh, and it was very uh, it was just uh, great meeting you. And thank you very much for coming on my show. Yeah, man, it was great meeting you. I really appreciate you having me on. This was a lot of fun. All right, that's the great Jamie Daniels. I think you all agree he does a great job. Uh, I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. 